Hello and welcome to the MDS podcast, the official podcast of the International Parkinson and Movement Disorder Society. I'm Sarah Schaefer, the deputy editor of the podcast from the Yale School of Medicine. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Tamara Pringsheim, who is a professor of neurology at the University of Calgary and the senior author on the Movement Disorders Clinical Practice Best Research Article of the Year, this year, 2023. We are at the Congress today in Copenhagen, and we'll be speaking about her recent paper, Have We Forgotten What Ticks Are? A Re-Exploration of Tick Phenomenology in Youth with Primary Ticks. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Pringsheim, and congratulations on your award. Thank you for inviting me to speak with you. All right. So let's start with the background. What prompted you to do this study and what were you hoping to add to the literature? I think the main motivation was that we started seeing a lot of young people with functional tick-like behaviors during the pandemic. And I was getting many, many referrals to my clinic. And these functional tick-like behaviors look nothing like ticks to me. And it perplexed me, why do people think these are ticks? Because the behaviors that we were seeing were so different from my patients with ticks. And I remember when I first became interested in Tourette syndrome in medical school, in my case, I started reading the articles written by the Shapiros, who were a husband and wife team of psychiatrists in New York City, and they were publishing articles in the 70s and 80s, and they did these in-depth phenomenological descriptions of the symptoms their patients had. And I said, well, maybe we need to get back to this. Maybe neurologists aren't seeing a lot of patients with tics anymore. And maybe just this modern reappraisal of what are the most common tics that we see is needed. So that was the motivation. Another was when we started seeing these functional tick-like behaviors, some people started questioning that many of the patients that were presenting were assigned female at birth. And most of our patients with Tourette syndrome are male. So some people were saying, well, maybe girls look different than boys who have ticks. And we have had a bias, like our view of Tourette syndrome is unfairly biased towards boys since three quarters of the patients are boys. So I thought this was fair. And so I said, well, I have the data. I've been running this tick disorder registry at my university. We got started in 2016, and we had accumulated hundreds of patients over several years. So I said, we've been collecting this data prospectively. We do it the same way on every child that we see. So this is really a chance to look at these questions. Certainly legitimate questions we've seen over and over in medicine that when you zoom out on demographics outside of males, generally, (laughs) that you might find different ways that people present. So I applaud you for recognizing that. So let's talk about how you went about your study. Yeah. So as I was mentioning, we have a Calgary Child Tick Disorders Registry. And so every child that we see, we invite to participate in our registry at their first clinical visit. And we have, I'd say, very good participation in the registry with the majority of people signing on. 
During the registration visit, we record basic demographic information, the diagnosis, the medications, the age of onset. We systematically screen and diagnose comorbid disorders, and we perform the Yale Global Tick Severity Scale. This is the gold standard instrument for measuring tick severity, and it includes a tick inventory. So the first few pages of the instrument are just a list of simple motor and simple vocal tics and complex motor and complex vocal tics. And you're supposed to ask the patient, what are the different tics you've had in the past week? And you simply check them off. And then there are ratings of number, frequency, intensity, complexity, and interference, and then impairment. And so we collect all this information at the first clinical visit. We have three other visits, a six-month visit, a 12-month visit, and then another visit when the patient turns 18. So for this study, we use the baseline data. So these were all children presenting for their first visit with a specialist for the question of a tick disorder. And so that was our methodology. We looked at the Yale the inventories and severity, and we looked at influencing factors of age, sex, and comorbidity on these symptoms. Can you summarize the results for us? And also, I was wondering if you were surprised by any of the results, and if you feel like the results are representative of ticks in general in the population. So I guess I wasn't really surprised by any of the results because this is what I do every day. I run a tick disorders clinic. I've seen thousands of children with ticks. But the mean age of onset was six. The mean age of the first visit was 10. And there were no differences in age of onset or age of clinical presentation between the girls and the boys that we saw. I mean, we had 75% of our participants were boys, but we still had, I'd say, a decent number of girls to make a comparison with. The predominant areas affected or the most common area to have ticks were the eyes and the face, and there was a preponderance of simple ticks, and the most common vocal ticks were throat clearing, sniffing, and coughing. And again, this is my everyday practice, so I wasn't surprised. I knew this from my experiences. And the most common complex vocal tick was the repetition of syllables. And coprolalia was uncommon at the first clinical visits. Only about 5% of kids had coprolalia at their first visit. We, could, we did a side-by-side -side comparison in terms of our girls presenting with different ticks than boys. There were a couple differences, but I don't really think that they were very clinically significant. So girls had a little bit more nose wrinkling and shoulder shrugging and grunting than boys, but I didn't think that this was really important. Girls, interestingly, had a very small difference in motor tick severity. Now, the scores, it was barely statistically significant, the difference, but it seemed consistent in that frequency and intensity were higher and tick-related impairment was higher in girls. Not by a lot, just a couple points, but there was a, a small difference there. Tick severity also was influenced by comorbidity, 
which again is not surprising. I think that all these children have neurodevelopmental disorders, and this is a greater burden of pathology. So they have more severe symptoms. One thing that I found fascinating that you brought up in the article was how the frequency of ticks in different body regions may relate to the somatotopic map in the brain. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I've just never thought about that before. Well, it's been demonstrated in other people's work as well. Christos Ganos, a colleague from Berlin, has also examined the somatotopic distribution in ticks, showing that it's the cranial and cervical regions that are most commonly affected. And we know that those areas have the greatest cortical representation. So face, cranial region, and then hands. And I think it makes sense that those parts of our body where there's more gray matter dedicated to their movement and we have more intricate control of those movements that we would have more ticks. When I think about the part of our body that we move the most, it's our eyes, right? Probably. I mean, that's what I'm assuming. It's our eyes. Our eyes are constantly moving. And so it doesn't surprise me that the most common places people have ticks are their eyes as well. Now, you said that one of the things that prompted you to do the study originally was this explosion of functional tick-like behaviors, the so-called quote-unquote TikTok ticks, right, that we've all Mm -hmm. heard about over the last few years. And then you bring it back in the article to how your data might help to distinguish between functional tick-like behaviors or primary tick disorders. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So we just submitted another paper where you see the graphs on the prevalence of motor ticks by type and location, the prevalence of phonic ticks by type, and you see the distribution of the simple ticks and the complex ticks on those pages. Again, sort of reinforcing the fact that the 10 most common motor ticks are all simple. And so we have a nice population of patients with functional tick-like behaviors that we've produced similar graphs for. And here, the situation is the reverse. The top 10 ticks are not all simple. There are some simple in there. In functional tick-like behaviors, the most common simple tick is a head jerk. It's a head jerk like this. I know you can't see what I'm doing, but it's a head tick where the neck is sort of forcefully extended and the chin comes up in the air. And that was really characteristic. And there is a lot of complex behaviors. So a lot of self-injurious behaviors like hitting oneself in the chest, hitting oneself in the head, a lot of words that were being repeated, phrases. And if you compare the bars side by side, the difference, it's striking that it's such a departure from the phenomenology that we see in Tourette syndrome. It's a highly sensationalized version of what people might think Tourette syndrome is, but in reality is not. And final point, can you speak a little bit to the lack of rostrocaudal progression in functional tick-like behaviors as opposed to primary tick disorders? Yeah. So typically when I first see a child who's five or six, I'd say in at least half of cases, the first tick the child has is blinking. 
And often they get taken to the eye doctor. I hear the story, oh yeah, we took him to the optometrist. We thought the eyes were dry. And we tried drops. And then after a few months, it went away. And then a few months later, he started like wrinkling his nose or he started opening his mouth really wide or started looking the eyes in one direction. And then over a period of time, the ticks can sort of migrate to involve the neck and the arms, but usually sort of the last places that they go are the trunk or the lower limbs. And so we see this rostrocaudal progression in ticks over time in people. In the functional tick-like behaviors, we didn't see that. So in Tourette syndrome, ticks creep in insidiously. They come in and then they wane and then they come back again and they change. But it's over months or years. Like you saw that most people had their onset at six, but they didn't come and see the specialist until they were 10 because it was just so slow and waxing and waning. So parents weren't alarmed. But with the functional tick-like behaviors, it was these symptoms started explosively overnight patients tell me, yeah, I woke up one day and I started throwing things or hitting myself in the chest and they developed 10 different ticks all on the same day, which were large and explosive. Didn't start with the face. Just one day had 10 different ticks, all being large dramatic movements or complex phrases. And we really don't see that in people with Tourette syndrome. Great. Is there anything else that you want to add or any next steps that you have in mind? Well, I have an adult tick registry as well. It's a combined effort with the Sorbonne University in Paris. And so we have a collection of adult patients who we are studying prospectively, also looking at their tick phenomenology. It's very similar to the tick phenomenology in children. There are some subtle differences. So that's something that we're working on. I want to acknowledge my fellow, Christelle Niles, who is the first author on this paper, who did all the digging through the data and all the analyses. I wish she was here to join this conversation with us, but she couldn't come to the meeting this year. But I just want to acknowledge all the hard work and effort that she made on this project. Absolutely. And congratulations to everybody on the paper. Thank you. The views and opinions expressed by the participants in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the International Parkinson and Movement Disorder Society or their affiliated journals, Movement Disorders and Movement Disorders Clinical Practice. Any disclosures of the participants can be found within the episode description located on the MDS website.